So the good news is, friends, if you are here for the first time, this is the sound of the church being in relationship and loving one another. And uh, today, you get to be part of it. My name's Eric Hansen. I'm uh, one of the pastors here, and really glad that you are here to worship with us uh, this morning, this second Sunday, the Sunday right after Easter. Easter really also was this glorious time for us to remember the goodness and the hope of Jesus Christ. And we started a, a worship series on Easter Sunday that we're now continuing for the next several weeks called Thresholds. And you might, you might recognize this little uh, logo. Um, you might have seen it in London where it says, Mind the Gap. And the idea is, is as you board a, a train, there's a little gap there to sort of get on, uh, get onto the train and begin t- uh, moving forward. And what we want to talk about over the next several weeks is how can we and the people that we are in relationship with who don't even yet know Jesus, how can we mind the gap? How can we cross the threshold together to help them on a life and a journey of faith? That started last Sunday as we looked at this really amazing story in the 8th chapter of Acts where Philip, who knows uh, the Lord and said yes to him, finds himself in an interaction with an Ethiopian eunuch, a man who does not know Jesus. And we watch them go on this brief little journey together and then, very suddenly it seems, the eunuch says, Hey, there's some water. I should get baptized. What should stop me? I'm in. I wish it was always that easy. But it is not. And over the next several weeks, we're going to seek to understand, well, what are those barriers? What are the thresholds that we can help someone sort of cross over into saying yes to Jesus? What are the things that uh, get in the way, and how can we think about them? And And the first one we're going to talk about today is this threshold of moving from distrust to trust. How do we, ourselves personally, but then also certainly also the the people we are in relationship with, how do we move from distrust to trust? How do we help them make that jump over that threshold so they can maybe say yes to Jesus Christ? And today we'll be talking about a certain kind of distrust that just pops up, it seems, everywhere in our country and in our community and probably even in our homes. And that is the distrust that is sort of expressed when when we have to wrestle with the accusation of hypocrisy. That really is an expression of distrust. So let's spend a few minutes praying together, shall we? We'll pray that the Lord would protect this part of my body. And we'll dive right in. Let's pray, shall we? Gracious, holy God, we thank you for the way that we have been led in worship this morning already. Thank you for being able to lift you up in song, to lay our lives and hearts and minds and imaginations before you in prayer. I have no doubt, Lord, that we, you are pleased as we gather and talk to one another and encourage one another in fellowship. 
Now, Lord, we come before you both in worship and seeking that you would fill us and teach us and instruct us today. Would you wipe away all the, the stuff that I do that doesn't matter, that we might hold on to the very center of the gospel? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be truly pleasing and acceptable in your sight. You are our Lord, our rock, our redeemer, and all God's people said, Amen. In the early 1900s, the London Times uh, sent a letter out to dozens of intellectuals, experts, professionals, saying, we are inviting submissions for essays that would go on our opinion pages. We're inviting submissions for you to reflect on what is the problem with the world today? What is the problem with the world today? And one of those intellectuals is a man named G.K. Chesterton, a very smart, very winsome um, kind, of a, kind of a man. And he wrote this letter back to the editor of the, Lon the London Times. Dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. He recognized something that we all recognize, that if there's something wrong with this world, then we're, we're part of that problem. It's not just out there, it's, it's in here. Somewhere else, G.K. Chesterton wrote this. He was, a, among other things, uh, he also was an apologist, and he wrote this. There is only one unanswerable argument against Christianity. There's only one thing that speaks against Christianity that cannot be answered, and that is... Christians. Do you recognize the truth of that statement in some way? That almost every single thing that we have to, to sort of offer the world seems to be like, we, get, we, have a, we have a way to think about that. We have a way to process that, except the problem with ourselves. See, here's the truth. Christians are hypocrites. I am. We are. You are. What are we supposed to do uh, about that? It's, it's hard actually to, to miss it, isn't it? People just seem to sort of be rough with each other. We actually seem to be living in an age of distrust. Well, that's where people start, and then it gets confirmed over and over and over again as we find ourselves listening to or reading or responding to the news of the day. Especially if you find yourselves, your heart sort of warming to Jesus Christ as an evangelical Christian, which I am an evangelical Christian. And I find myself responding to what I hear in the news with, with really great confusion because so often faith seems to be used as a weapon. Mark Laberton, um, my former senior pastor when I was an associate elsewhere, he recently wrote an introduction to a book, and this is what he said about it, that, that Christianity, especially evangelical Christianity, is it's not so much a theological commitment as it is now a theopolitical brand. Do you recognize the truth of that? 
you find yourselves confused about how to live and trust in the person of Jesus Christ when, when who you know Jesus to be is always sort of being sort of stolen away by someone who wants to use him and not follow him. I've had questions with some of the Christians in this room who I consider to have the, the most deep and remarkable and mature of faith, and they've even shared with me that they're reluctant to tell other people that they are Christians, much less evangelical Christians. Imagine how hard that must be then. If, if, that's, if it's hard for those, imagine how hard it must be for those who don't know Jesus. How are they supposed to think about Christianity? How are we supposed to be responding to their own sense of, of distrust? Because Christianity has become, in our culture, something it actually isn't. A theopolitical brand, not deep and abiding trust in a saving God. But I want to say, friends, the problem is not just sort of out there. It's not just the culture. It's in this room. Right now, it's in this room. This hypocrisy is in this room, and it's even on this stage. George Barna, a number of years ago, sometime in the early 2010s, did this uh, study. And in their study, they found out that one in seven, only one in seven, that's about, if you're going to do the nerd math, 14.4% or something like that, okay? Only 14% of self-described Christians have an intellectual faith in Jesus that is connected to behavior that looks like Jesus. As they've done their work and the questions they asked and the research they did, only one in seven manages to hold Christ-like beliefs and also Christ-like ways. What are we supposed to do about that? How are we supposed to think about that? I have my own version of this story in my, in my own life. This is not just out there. It's in our own stories. I, one of the very first Christians that I knew as a Christian was a, um, was a, I was a teenager. He was a teenager named Scott. And Scott had uh, the only uh, basketball court in our neighborhood. And uh, I knew he was a Christian because, you know, he talked about Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights all the time. But he wore his Christianity like a weapon. And as I tried to figure out who he was and how I could get more time on his basketball court, he, he made me feel so small and condemned, unwise, and unwelcome. Now, he may hear this sermon because he's now a deep and abiding personal friend of mine. We all have room to grow. Love you, Scott. Around that same, same time, I, I also met someone, I've talked about him before, named Larry. And if Scott wore his faith like a weapon, Larry wore his faith, his trust in Jesus, like a gift. 
he certainly himself would have said, oh no, I've got my own mismatch between what I believe and what I do. But I was so intrigued by him. Spending time with Larry, getting to know Larry was like drinking water from a deep, cool pool of water. He expressed a kind of an interest and a curiosity and a kindness towards me that I, I didn't even really have categories for. And eventually, because of that, he is the one who led me all the way across the thresholds to trust in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He helped me to set aside this thing that I'd noticed about Scott and even other Christians, and he led me to say yes. Many of you have some sort of story like that as well, I know. And can I just say to you, I don't think we should be surprised by this. I don't think we should be surprised that hypocrisy seems to be part of our regular story. If you are a Christian here, I want to say some things to you. If you are a non-Christian here, this is also true for you. I want you to sort of re-understand the place for hypocrisy in a Christian's life. First of all, we should not be surprised when it's there. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul talks about his struggle with hypocrisy. And if he's got problems, then probably I will too. And in this letter he wrote to the Romans, this is uh, what he wrote in chapter 7. Read the whole thing. I'm not trying to like hide anything by picking out these verses, but these are the verses that especially like hone in on this challenge of hypocrisy. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. Does this already sound like you? Sounds like me. But what I hate to do, that thing I keep on doing. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil that I want to, I want to stop, the evil I do not want to do, that thing I keep on doing. I find this law at work, although I want to do good. Evil is right there with me. Christians are hypocrites. And understanding what the gospel is will help us understand why we are hypocrites. Understanding what it is we're seeking to proclaim whenever it is we are together will help us understand why there always seems to be this mismatch. So what I said last week and what I'll say to you again right now is that the gospel is good news, not just good advice. It is good news. And that makes it actually utterly unique in the pantheon of religions that we can study and know and maybe even seek to follow. See, almost every other version of faith starts in this spot. There is a real, deep, spiritual reality. There is something actually that's happening that is beyond just our simple awareness and vision. And the way that you get onto that train is to to live the way that you should. Live as you ought. If you start following the rules, if you start doing the things you're supposed to doing, then 
God will accept you and bless you. If you just start following the rules, you're in. God will accept you and, and bless you. And if that was the case, then certainly it should be that Christians should be better behaved because they've already, like, they've been making some progress. They've been working hard before they've discovered the acceptance of Jesus. But in fact, friends, Christianity is utterly unique in that it's the re- exact reverse of that. See, Christianity says, accept God's acceptance. Receive his blessing. Let Jesus stand in your place. And then, and only then, will you find yourself living the way that you are supposed to. It's the reverse. It's sheer gift. But that runs counter to almost everything we ever think about in any other sphere of our life. We are enamored of meritocracy. Earn it. Work for it. Then you will receive. There might be communities and cultures out there that don't work on a meritocracy and the way the society works. But I want to tell you something. You are not in it. If there is ever even a corner of the United States of America that understands meritocracy, it's got to be this county. Part of the reason why we come here is because we feel like we've earned it. We feel like we deserve it. We are now in the vortex of awesome because we've worked so hard for it. It's ours. Yes! But the problem is, friends, we apply that to our spiritual lives. The gospel is not advice. It is good news. And And the good news simply is this. God came to save sinners. That's what it says in 1 Timothy. In fact, it goes beyond that. It says, God came to save sinners, and when I examine my own life, I'm pretty sure I'm the worst. In Paul's letter to the second, to Corinthians, his second letter to the Corinthians, he, he says, Christ came to redeem the world, not to wait for itself to get straightened out. See, we love meritocracy, but I want to be really clear with you when we're talking about the gospel. If you have to earn it, it's not blessing. If you have to work for it, it's not love. And what we are talking about week in, week out, is the love of God, who's lavished with you. Not because you're awesome, but because you're not. In spite of who you are. I know that can be offensive, and it's so contrary to the way most of us live that we don't even really have categories for it. That's why we have to keep on coming back and be reminded of the gospel week in and week out, because nowhere else do we find the good news that you've been accepted and blessed. Now let's discover what it's like to actually live that way. And see, friends, that's actually... That's actually why we're hypocrites. Because this is salvation. Salvation is something that happens immediately and over a lifetime. Salvation happens immediately 
and then over a lifetime. Because if you've said yes to Jesus, you've received his acceptance and blessing. If you've said yes to Jesus, that means there's still quite a bit of lag between who you are and what you do. There's a big phase shift difference between saying yes to Jesus and learning how to live like the one who saved you. That's where we are. It's, it's no wonder that people want to say that Christians are hypocrites because we are. It's, it's built into the challenge and call of the gospel itself. You don't have to work, strive to get this blessing. It is yours. But now the challenge is we have to learn how to actually live it out. There's some catching up to do. It's not unlike this movie, The Shawshank Redemption. Raise your hand if you've ever seen The Shawshank Redemption. It is an incredible movie. I really encourage you to watch it. I rewatched it a couple months ago. And the Shawshank Redemption is a, it's a prison movie, and it's remarkable, and it's beautiful, and it's challenging. And, and one of the themes of this movie is the theme of institutionalism. These men have been in prison for years and years and years, and when they're finally set free, some of them don't really know what to do with their freedom. So they find themselves going back to uh, their crimes. They find themselves maybe even intentionally going back to their crimes so they can go back to jail. Some are so panicked by it, they do harm to themselves. They don't know what to do with their freedom. And friends, that's actually also true of us in Jesus Christ. You have been set free from the prison of sin. You have received the blessing of your freedom. But we've been so institutionalized by being trapped by it. We've, we're so accustomed to living and having a life of sin. Even once we've been set free, we sometimes forget how to live like free people. And so the charge of hypocrisy is true and accurate and defensible. We are on a journey of learning how to live out what is already true of us. And as you're in relationships and conversations with others, they're, they're going to notice, well, they're going to probably notice your hypocrisy. But even that hypocrisy can be overcome with the rule of Jesus Christ in your hearts and minds. Hypocrisy is not your only story. It's not our only story. There's a way for us to be in relationship with those who don't know Christ in a way that can live out hopefulness, authenticity, the truth of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Not because we're awesome, but because Jesus is. We see this idea almost everywhere in the New Testament. Larry, that man who led me to Christ, he, one of the very first things he um, made me do was memorize Colossians chapter 3. It's a beautiful chapter of the Bible. 
But here's the first verse. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now, oftentimes we skip this stuff. We, this is news, and what we really want is we want the advice that's going to come later. But don't miss the news, friends. Did you, did you see it? Since then, you have been raised with Christ. You have the blessing. You have received the goodness of life through the work of Jesus Christ. It's yours. You have been raised. It's completed, accomplished, full stop, period, end of story. You've been raised. And then, set your hearts on things above. Start learning how to have your actual life and desires match what is already true of you. You've been raised. Set your hearts up in that same place. There's always going to be a little bit of lag for us as we seek to actually live into what has already happened to our heart and our mind. And no doubt it's going to happen with you, with your friends and co-workers or children or whatever. You're going you're gonna to be in this spot where there's lag and people are going to call you a hypocrite. And do you know what you say? I'm sorry. You don't explain. You don't justify. You don't defend. You just say, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Let's continue. So for those of you who are in Christ and those of you who are not yet in Christ, I have one final little thing for you before we hear a short testimony along some of these same themes. There's this one small little sentence, two sentences really in the Gospel of John that I, I often come back to in my own sort of thinking when I think about uh, things like this or tempted by something else or whatever else. And it's this moment in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, where Jesus has been teaching and preaching, and there's something that's really has been intriguing about him. And all of a sudden, that's a whole other sermon, people start leaving in drones and droves, dozens upon hundreds. He's, he's looking at their backs as they walk away from him. And, and he sort of is worried. It's this really poignant, kind of sad moment where you can hear Jesus wondering, are his disciples even going to do the same thing? Are they going to leave me too? And she says, are you guys going to leave me too? And this is what Simon Peter says. Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You're it. You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, the good news about that, friends, is in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, there's probably not a bigger knucklehead hypocrite than Simon Peter. And friends, what he has learned here is what we all need to do when we find ourselves trapped in the reality or the accusation of hypocrisy. Lord, where else, where else are we going to go? We're going to set our eyes and our gaze on you. You're the one. People, they're riffraff. They're going to make mistakes, even as they seek to live faithfully together. They, what we really need to do is set our eyes on Jesus Christ he alone is worthy. He alone is the one who can show us the way. He alone will be eternally and ever consistent with us. 
Christians are hypocrites. And it's because we're saved both instantaneously and over a lifetime. So what will you do now? What will you do now? Both in your own life and in the life of the people around you who you are desperate to come to know Jesus Christ? Set your gaze on the Lord and on Him alone. Now, the ironic thing about that is we almost always do that in community and with someone else. How many of you, when you think, those of you who have said yes to Jesus, when you think about your own story in Jesus Christ, you can blame a person? Raise your hand if you can sort of blame a person for where you are in Christ. Yeah! So I'm going to invite Christine Brockett as we come to a close in our sermon to tell another story of her own coming to faith crossing this threshold from distrust to trust. Let's praise the Lord as we listen to what he's done. Good morning. So I am Christine Brockett, and I was raised in a non-church-going home. We were culturally Christian, but at best agnostic. My parents were university professors, and our family valued intelligence, knowledge, and logic, with a certain disdain for those who made decisions based on emotions. One of the smartest people I knew, and still know, is my best friend, Carrie. It was seriously not worth your time to argue with her if you didn't have your facts and logic straight because she would crush you. So, imagine my surprise a year or so after she moved to Australia when she called me up and told me that she had become a Christian. I guess I should mention that in in addition to being really smart, she could also sometimes be really crazy. So, I just put that in the crazy category. Over the next couple of years, we would have occasional conversations about this newfound faith of hers. She would use apologetics to try to prove that God existed or that faith in Jesus was necessary, but it just didn't make sense to me. Plus, I could tell that she really wanted me to believe in Jesus, and this created tension for me because I wanted to be in agreement and harmony with my best friend But I didn't believe, understand, or even want this thing that had become important to her. Now, let me tell you about another friend I also had at this same time. There was an older man who worked with me um, named Brad. Brad was a really nice guy. Kind, friendly, supportive. Just a really good person that I felt safe with. We worked for a tech company, and you don't find a lot of people of faith in that setting, but I knew Brad was a Christian, and I knew he was a Christian because we would have conversations like this, where he would say something like, Christine, do you have any questions about Jesus that I could answer? (laughs) And I would say, no, Brad, I don't. And he'd say, well, if you ever do, just let me know. And I'd say, okay, thanks. I probably won't. 
And it would just be like that. Easy, no pressure, no big deal. And we'd go on being friends and co-workers. So at some point, I decided to go to Australia and visit my friend Carrie. I was so excited to see her. I was also a little concerned because the way she talked about her faith and her church made me wonder if maybe she had gotten involved in a cult. On the other hand, uh, even when I talked to her on the phone and long distance, I could tell that there were positive changes happening in her life. So I resolved that when I went, to, went there and saw her, that I would just learn everything I could about what she was into and just make sure that she was okay. When I got there, it turned out that she belonged to a small house church filled with really wonderful people. While I was there, I probably had 12 or 13 conversations with people who just happened to mention how they came to faith and how Jesus had changed them. And I could tell that there was something really good in their lives, and it was so attractive to me. It was just too bad that none of it was true, so I thought. As I left Australia, Carrie gave me a Bible and said, well, maybe you could read a gospel. So one night at home, I opened the book of Matthew and read it. The things I read in there were so contrary to the way the world thinks and acts that it suddenly occurred to me that there, there's no way human beings would make this stuff up. Maybe there is a God. Maybe this story is true. Well, I'm sure you can guess what happened next. I went to work, and I said, Brad, I have questions. <laughs> there is, of course, a lot more to the story of how I came to understand the gospel for myself and to fall in love with the living God. But at this crucial point in my life, it was great to have a friend that I trusted, that I could bounce things off of, and who respected my need to work through this at my own pace. So as we consider the role that trust plays in our walks of faith, let me end with this. One of the few people that my friend Carrie had in her life that she trusted was me. And so when I decided that the gospel was real and put my faith in Jesus Christ, Carrie was astounded. And suddenly for her, God was no longer just an intellectual proposition, and the gospel was not an argument to be won. If I believed, then it must be true, and she could believe. And so for that reason, Carrie and I both say that we became a Christian because of the other one. But at the same time, I just want to say thank God for Brad. Thank you.